Again, through the amazing grace of God, we're here spared monuments this side of eternity and are permitted to meet here tonight to worship him in honor of his resurrected son. When Mitch called me, he um, wanted me to give him maybe a, an outline of what I'd be talking about. And I thought about it a great deal and decided to talk on the church, the past, present, and future, because there's no institution on earth greater than that blood-bought institution, the Church of the Living God. I have found out that not only the world doesn't understand the church, a lot of my brethren don't understand it. And so we started out with this series. I started out with the definition of the term itself, the church, as a collective noun, and I spent a great deal of time with that from a grammatical standpoint, uh, pointing out that uh, a collective noun may express itself either as a unit, collectively, or as individuals. And we took up a number of scriptures to enhance that. And then I studied with you in the next lesson the way the word ecclesia, the church, is used in the New Testament. And I pointed out that the church of the Lord is used in at least four different ways in the New Testament. And the only way that we know how it's used is by a contextual study and honesty. I pointed out that the universal concept is in the Bible, and I gave you scripture for that. I'll not be redundant and go over them again. I pointed out that the local church is mentioned also, the church in the local sense. Number three, I pointed out that sometimes uh, the treasury sense, 1 Timothy 5, 16, and sometimes when we say, let the church do it, uh, what do we mean? We mean taking it out of the church treasury. No one would deny that. I've never had anyone to deny it yet. And then number four, I pointed out that sometimes we use the church distributively, individually. And uh, I told about my discussion down at Grenada, Mississippi, with a preacher several years ago who didn't understand that, but I... I thought he did after we got through. But anyway, we uh, discussed that, and our subject tonight is going to be on authority in the church, how it gets its authority for doing certain things in the Bible. You know, ladies and gentlemen, so many people tell me that they have a hard time understanding this grand old book I have here known as the Biblos, the Word of God. And I can understand that. Uh, they... They say it's just hard for me to understand it. They don't know how to approach a study of the Bible properly, and that not only happens outside of the church, it happens within the confines of the church of the living God. So we're going to try to address this subject tonight, if possible, and maybe be helpful to you, hopefully, in a greater understanding of the Word of God, or how to study it. Of course, number one, as Paul said in Second Timothy 2.15, you've got to rightly divide the Bible, naturally, that, that's axiomatic. You've got to understand there's an Old Testament and a New, and, and God had different dispensations in which he spoke in different ways to people, as we're taught in Hebrews 1. You've got to understand that first. Then you've got to understand that God speaks to us today and gives us authority for doing things in about three different ways, well, possibly four, but at least three. 
that many times in the Bible we have what is known as direct commands. And in our English translation, that's in the imperative mode. We call it the mode of command. And I'm going to call your attention, first of all, to Matthew 28, 18, and 19. You're familiar with this, the Great Commission by the Lord, recorded by Matthew. Jesus prefaced this Great Commission by saying, All power or authority has been given to me. That word power is a powerful word. We have a couple of words from which we get that word power. One is exousia here, and the other one is dunamis, of course, over in Romans 1. And exousia means absolute power. I told you yesterday that when the Roman Catholic Church selected the pontiff in 606, they took authority away from Jesus and put it in the church. The church doesn't have any authority. But the Roman Catholics put it there. And if you don't believe it, you ask one. Now, I told you about meeting that priest in Fort Smith, Arkansas, years ago, and I asked him if there was a conflict between what the Bible said and what the Pope said. Which would he take? He hesitated a moment, and he said, I can answer that. He said, I'll take what the church says over what the Bible says. I knew that when I asked the question. Because when they selected the Pope and made him the vicar of Jesus Christ, that's what they did. We don't want to do that in the church. It doesn't make any difference what the church says. It's what the Lord says. He says, all power or authority hath been given unto me, both in heaven and on earth. Power is vested in heaven at the right hand of God in the hands of our blessed Lord. We want to remember that. I recall several years ago in the state of Oklahoma, way back, I was talking to a fellow, and the church had brought in some innovations, and I told him, I said, the church doesn't have any authority to be doing that. Now, they will forget what he told me. He says, well, aren't most of the brethren practicing that now? I said, what difference does that make? He was putting authority in what the brethren practiced. And sometimes we do that. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't make any difference what the brethren practice. Bless your life, you need to understand that authority is vested in Jesus. And I wanted to spend a little time with that before I got into what the Lord said. After he said all authority was vested in himself, he said, uh, go teach all nations. That's a direct command, imperative mode. That's my subject. I, we're talking about how God speaks to us. One way is by a direct command. He told his apostles, he says, go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, all of that is a part of a command, direct command, imperative mode. And um, indeed, it's, it's true. Uh, when he says go, that means locomotion, moving about, and he didn't tell us how to go. Uh, that's a matter of judgment. And sometimes, brethren, can't differentiate between expediency and law. And it causes division in the church. The Lord didn't tell us how to go. He just told us to go. Whether we can ride or we can walk. And as one man said, slip or slide. But the, the Bible tells us to go. And we don't want to bind some particular way to go. Because the Lord didn't say that. He says, go teach 
didacto, which means to convey thought or idea to someone else. Mitch talked about teaching his father. Well, that's the way we convert people. We've got to teach them. And by doing that, we convey a thought from one person to another. And, of course, using the Bible as our guide. Teaching. Teaching. And we can teach by authority or in subjection. Several years ago, I was in a public discussion with a man named Van Beno from Dobson, Texas at Savannah, Georgia. And he didn't believe that a woman could say anything in the assembly. He didn't believe she could be. I never will forget what he did. He kept prodding me, asking me if a woman could teach a men's Bible class. He said, I want Hoagland to answer that. Can a woman teach a men's Bible class? He just kept answering, asking that question. I finally called the point of order and I said, Mr. Van Benoe, I said, do you uh, want me to answer that now? He said, yes, sir. He said, I'll give you my time. He said, come to the roster, come to the pulpit. And he said, answer it now. I said, fine. I said, step aside. And he did. I said, I'm going to answer your question. Then I want to ask you one. I said, yes, a woman can teach a men's Bible class if she does it in subjection. But she can't do it with authority. You can't get up over a men's Bible class. But if she's sitting in the class and she conveyed a thought unto some of the men, she has taught them, but she did it in subjection and not in authority. Therefore, she's in harmony with 1 Timothy 2. I said, I have answered your question. I said, your problem is you think that every time a person teaches, they have to do it with authority, but you're wrong. But I said, I want to ask you a question, Mr. Beno, or Brother Beno. I said, has a woman in the church ever taught you anything, anywhere, anytime? I sat down. He came to the rostrum and his face turned white and then it turned red. He said, Brother Hoagland has asked me if a woman has ever taught me anything. He said, I'm not going to answer that. You know why? He couldn't. He was caught. He didn't know that you can teach two different ways. You got to study your Bible. You follow me? That's right. You got to study the Word. Let me tell you. Jesus says, go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And after he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, he then made a statement in the indicative mode. When I say that God speaks to us by direct command, I want to add another little appendage to it, and by statement. Because the latter part of the commission is not a command, it's a statement, it's in the indicative mode instead of the imperative mode. He said, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. That's not a command. It's a statement, isn't it? I believe it is. I believe it is. 
Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, when you study this book, remember God may speak to you through a direct command or statement. If you go to the other great commission recorded by Mark, 16, 15 and 16. Jesus there, as recorded by Mark, says, Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. That's not a command, but it is a statement. It's just as powerful as a command. Because we have to obey Mark 16, 15, and 16, just like we do Matthew 28, 18, 19. He just said, after he had told them to go into the world, which was a part of the command, but then the latter part's what I'm alluding to, where he says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's a statement. And it tells us what people must do in order to uh, in order to be saved. I preach a great deal on Mark 16 and what the Lord said there about he that believeth. Someone mentioned it to me during this. Said they heard me years ago and I talked on Mark 16:15 and 16. I uh, try to show people when. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That the belief is just as important as the baptism, and the baptism is just as important as the belief. Some of our denominational neighbors want to say, Well, you've got to believe, but you don't have to be baptized. I told them that um, belief and baptism are joined by the word and, which is called a copulative conjunction, joining verbs of equal rank. And uh, I went back to my childhood days when I was in the fifth grade. And my grammar teacher was trying to teach us about conjunctions, and she drew a couple of boxcars on the chalkboard. And she put one verb in one boxcar, and she put the other verb in the other boxcar. And she put a coupling pin in between them, joining them together, and then she put an engine on the front of them, and Pulled him down the track. She said, uh, when you join those two verbs, they have to move in the same direction. Because you've got a coupling pin in them. Says you can't move one of the boxcars one direction and the other one the other direction down the track. Unless you take the coupling pin out. And I remembered that. So I put belief in one boxcar, and I put baptism in the other. I put a coupling pin in them, which the Holy Spirit put there. We took them down the track, and they both had to go toward salvation. You couldn't say you believe toward salvation, but you're baptized because you're already saved. Because if you did that, you're sending one boxcar the opposite direction. Are you listening to me? You see how simple that is? My teacher said, Ward, do you get that? I said, yeah, Miss Simmons. I said, I understand it. She said, well, if you understand it, everybody does. <laughs> I, uh, but anyway, it's unanswerable. It's unanswerable. 
For these people say you don't have to be baptized. It's just in the book. That's how it is, isn't it? Now, what we're studying is, is about authority. And that it's given to us by, by direct command. But there's another way. Sometimes a thing is just inferred. And in Matthew 3, when Jesus was um, baptized, it says he came up out of the water. And uh, if he came up out of the water, it was necessarily inferred that he had to go down into the water. And therefore, that's what we call a necessary inference. A necessary inference. And that's another way God speaks to you. Then there's a third way. It is by apostolic example. Philippians, the fourth chapter, down about verse 9. Paul says, those things which you've seen and heard in me... Those things do, and the God of peace shall be with you. It seems that he gives us a command to follow those examples in the Bible which are approved. Not any example, but the ones that are approved. And that's another way that God speaks to us in the church. When the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew, the 26th chapter, he picked up a piece of bread. He said, take eat, this is my body. There's a command. <laughs> Another command. And um, it is necessarily inferred that it was unleavened bread because the Jews had purged their homes of leaven during the Passover. Therefore, by the authority of God, when you spread the Lord's Supper out on the Lord's table, you you uh, use unleavened bread. Not because of a direct command, but because of a necessary inference. Is that not right? I believe it is. And um, the Lord said, you'll not eat of this supper until you eat of it anew with me in my kingdom, or the Father's kingdom. And therefore... The Lord's Supper is for people in the kingdom or in the church. According to the Lord, in the church. And uh, after he instituted the Lord's Supper with the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, he didn't give the recurrence of it. That is... He didn't tell us in the kingdom how often we are to observe it. We have to go other places in the Bible to find out when we are to observe the Lord's Supper. So when Paul in Acts 20 met with the brethren in Troas, it says upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. They came together in an assembled capacity for the purpose of observing the Lord's Supper. And the Bible said it's the first day of the week. That's not a command. It's not even a necessary inference. It is an apostolic example revealed in the Word of God. And therefore, the time element for the Lord's Supper is given to us. And it is the first day of the week. So we learn from the observance of the Lord's Supper 
that we have not only commands, we have an inference, and later we have an approved example about when we observe the Lord's Supper. And my brethren need to understand that. We've eaten the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week for years and years, and I think we're right in doing it. I still say there's only one Scripture in the New Testament which tells us when to eat the Lord's Supper, and that's Acts 27. And it's not a command, but it is an apostolic example, and it'll stand the test of time. Several years ago, when these current issues came up, as we call them, I was in a meeting at... uh, Clarksville, Arkansas, between Little Rock and Fort Smith. And um, I was talking to this preacher, young preacher there, and um, we differed on how the church was to do evangelistic work and some other things. And uh, I tried to emphasize to him that the Bible taught through apostolic example that in Philippians 4, 16 and 17, uh, 15 and 16, and, and in, in, in 2 Corinthians 11, 8, that uh, when they supported the evangelists out of the treasury of the church, they sent directly to him and not through some sponsoring church. He said, but that's just an example. I said, that's what it is. It's an approved example. He said, well, I don't believe I have to follow that. I don't believe I have to do it that way. I said, well... I said, let me ask you this. I said, uh, you observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, and all you have is an example for that. I said, would you be for changing the Lord's Supper and eating it some other time? He said, uh, it wouldn't make any difference to me. I said, really? It wouldn't make any difference to you? He said, no, it wouldn't make any difference when we ate the Lord's Supper. I said, do your elders know that you believe that? He said, no, Ward. He said, I believe a lot of things these elders don't know. And then we wonder what's wrong with the church. We wonder what's wrong with the church. You follow me? Some of these preachers will hide behind the pulpit and they espouse, espouse things that no one knows, not even the elders. That's why the church was led into institutionalism. In the digression, which I'm going to talk about tomorrow night, I'm studying the history of the church from its inception on the day of Pentecost. But my point is, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, in Acts 20 and 7, and that was one of the things that opened my eyes years ago when all of this stuff came up in the church. And they started bringing in these innovations and encroachments foreign to the teaching of the will of God. Now, I want to close by saying this as I sort of close in on the final points of my lesson. And uh, tomorrow night I'll go into detail on this, but I want to touch on it briefly. Tomorrow night I'm going to talk about the three major apostasies in the church. And what caused them? And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I want to tell you this. 
They were all three caused for the same reason or by the same reason. Denying apostolic examples. Believe me. When the Lord instituted the church, he put a plurality of elders over every congregation. The brethren, when they went into digression the first time, put one man over congregation, which was a violation of the apostolic examples of the plurality of elders in every church. And that led to the Pope in 606. And a lot of brethren don't even know that. I'll go into more detail tomorrow. They just didn't follow the examples of the Bible, of the plurality of elders. The second apostasy was caused the same way by violating the proved examples of sending directly to an evangelist in the field of evangelism and directly to a church in the, in the field of benevolence. In your Bible, 2 Corinthians 11, 8, Paul said, I robbed other churches taking my salary from them to do you service. Salary is wages. Paul took his wages from what? Other churches while he lived at Corinth, while he was there. And there's no indication that anyone handled that money except the churches who were supporting Paul and Paul himself. I had a man down in Pensacola, Florida, and Matter of fact, Brother Ron Mosby was moderating for me at that time. He tried to tell me that the church of Philippi was a sponsoring church, but he couldn't do it. I may talk about that a little more tonight. It just won't work. It's true, Paul said in Philippians 4, 15 and 16, Ye Philippians know at the beginning of the gospel, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only... For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again to my need or necessity. Thessalonica is in Macedonia. He's not talking about anything he received in 2 Corinthians 11 8. They have no connection whatsoever. But liberal brethren have tried to connect them. But they can be exposed, I guarantee you. They think they found a sponsoring church in Philippi. They haven't found a sponsoring church in Philippi. Some of them tried to say that Paul had gone all the way down to Corinth and that uh, Philippi collected money from other churches sent to him. And I pointed out that there's four assumptions in that. I'll not go into detail on it right now because I don't have time. But I want to tell you, it's all based on assumption. All on assumption. And... What actually Philippians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11, 8 teach is that if when a church takes money out of the church treasury, they are to send it directly to that evangelist. The missionary societies keep their hands off of it. Sponsoring church keep their hands off of it. And do what the Bible says. But the last two apostasies in the church were money problems. I told you that money caused the first scandal in the church when Ananias and Sapphira were killed over money. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to follow the pattern when you eat the Lord's Supper. You've got to follow the pattern when you support evangelists. Don't be sending it to a sponsoring church. Don't be sending it to a missionary society. Let them keep their filthy hands off of the treasury of the local church. The elders are to make the decision. 
Congregation is to be independent and autonomous, which means the right of self-government. And all three of these apostasies, when the church has gone astray, have been caused because people did not respect the authority of the Word of God. If they'd have respected the authority of the Word of God, the church would have never gone into apostasy in the first place. They just didn't respect authority. And some of them didn't know how it was established. But I told you tonight, and I backed it up with Scripture. You have direct commands or statements. You have necessary inferences. And you have apostolic examples. And the third one is the culprit that causes the trouble. The apostolic example. It caused the Roman Catholic hierarchy to be developed. It caused the Missionary Society to split the church in 1849. And it caused the church to be split over the sponsoring church in 1949. You can believe me on that and take that to the bank. Because that's the way it is. And there's no amount of diabolical ingenious nor perverted genius that can overthrow such a bulwark of proof and authenticity. The lesson is yours tonight. I hope it will be helpful to you.